Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fossil Bonanza, and my name is Andy Connolly, and this is a podcast where we look at unusual fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstätten. Now, this is our last episode of Season 1, and during this first season, I set out a goal to hit a variety of Lagerstätten in terms of their time period, their location, the organisms that are preserved, and their method of preservation. And for our last episode of the season, I wanted to continue this, but also talk about a Lagerstätten that I never heard of before, go into it completely blind, and folks, I found a good one. In southeastern Australia, there is a World Heritage Site called Narakurta Caves National Park. Inside these caves are fossils of prehistoric mammals, the megafauna of Australia. Just as the Americas and Eurasia had their own megafauna from the past several hundred thousand years, like the mammoth, mastodon, woolly rhino, and the giant ground sloth, so too does Australia. Only in this case, these megafauna have a pouch. That's right, we got supersized marsupials. It's pretty great. And honestly, if given the choice, I would go back to the Pleistocene epic, which was only about 11,000 to 2 million years ago. This is such a cool and wonderful time period, and it's so incredibly similar to our world, but with just more large animals. Like seriously, there's giant beavers, giant bears, giant armadillos, giant condors, the list goes on. It's very fun. And at Narracourt Caves, we see a beautiful mix of Australian megafauna with animals of today. It's very cool, and honestly, it's overlooked. Like, compared to the previous Lagerstätten I've covered, there hasn't been a lot of uh, publicity that's conducted here. Uh, True, this is still a relatively new site, but given that J-Hull has seen practically hundreds of publications and many eye-catching news stories, Narracourt is practically unknown. But as we will discover, Narracourt is still an active and ongoing site, one that still has much to tell us about Australia, its large animals, and their eventual extinction. So today, let's get trapped at Narracourt Caves in Fossil Bonanza. In 1857, Reverend Julianne Woods stepped into Blanche Cave with nothing more than candlelight as a guide and curiosity as a drive. By then, the caves near Narracourt, which was then known as Mosquito Plains, were well known in the area, and fossil reports were already making the rounds in the community. With a keen familiarity in biology, he investigated the caves and discovered curious formations. Fossils of small rodents and marsupials were buried at the base of stalagmites. His reports and notes of these critters were the first official documentation of the fossils at Narracourt Caves. Yet it wasn't until 1908, and repeated findings afterwards, when megafauna weren't discovered in these caves, like the ancient marsupial predator Thylacoleo. Regardless, the Narracourt Caves were still valued more for their scenery and recreation rather than their scientific value. This all changed in 1969 
when cave explorers discovered a new section of Victoria Cave and found the fossil bonanza of the lifetime. The fossils were so numerous and distinct that the cavernous room was named Fossil Chamber. And in a drastic change of events, the cave suddenly became famous and took the reins as one of the best fossil sites in all of Australia. Through the cooperation of individuals like scientists, volunteers, and landowners, and large-scale organizations like museums, universities, and tourism boards, the fossils and the greater caves became a park where visitors could enter the caves and watch the fossil excavations live. Laws and rules were proposed and passed to preserve these caves and ensure that the quality of their education and entertainment would be protected for generations to come. The area became protected in 1972 and was then named Narracourt Caves Conservation Park. Eventually, the Narracourt Caves and its sister fossil site in Riverslay were inducted as World Heritage Sites in December 1994 as the, quote, Australian Mammal Fossil Sites. This means these sites are considered outstanding in universal manner and meet two of the ten criteria to be a World Heritage Site. Since the major fossil discoveries, Narcourt has seen a boom of interest from the public who regularly visit the caves. Eventually, a visitor center was built to interpret the paleontological wonder site and to help visitors enjoy their stay in the park. A little later on, the park was rebranded as Narcourt Caves National Park, where you can still visit the park to this day and go inside the fabled caves. And this leads me to the big question, how did these caves form? So during the Eocene to Miocene, about 34 to 12 million years ago, soft limestone was slowly laid down by the ocean on the southeastern coast of Australia. The limestone was then uplifted and then exposed to the land where it was partially covered by beach sand dunes. Acidic water soaked through the ground and partially dissolved the limestone, forming large caves. You can actually still find fossils of seashells within the cave walls, which is pretty cool in my book. The caves continue to be uplifted, where they are now over 100 kilometers from the coastline. Now, as these caves were forming, though, holes would appear connecting the underground caves to the surface. These holes can form when the cave is too close to the surface and the thin soil collapses, or when rainwater dissolves cracks on the surface, which slowly creates larger solution pipes. Over time, these holes acted as natural traps for unsuspecting animals. Perhaps they were outrunning a predator or simply strayed too close to the gaping maw and slid inside the underground cave. Regardless, once these animals fell, they couldn't escape. The entrance was one way. The animals then died through either the fall or eventual starvation. The bones of these animals would accumulate over time, along with owl regurgitates, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. So you will find fossils of animals that died in the caves, owl regurgitates, or of just simply those who lived in the cave naturally, like bats. And through time, thousands upon thousands of animals met their fate in Australia's ancient Sarlacc pit, and were eventually buried by dirt and sand that sunk into the holes. This rubble would build up from the cave's floor, forming a cone of debris and dead animals. The cone would then reach its way to the surface, where it would clog the entrance, 
and wait patiently for thousands of years until it was rediscovered. Now, quick side tangent, but I want to address something that's been bothering me. The Naracourt Caves literature, from what I've read, is surprisingly reserved in using the term Lagerstadt to describe these caves. I even found a Wikipedia discussion from 2006 debating whether or not Naracourt Caves should be considered a Lagerstadt, and I'm here to confidently say, yes, it is. Naracourt is a textbook definition of a Konzentrat Lagerstadt. That is a Lagerstadt that has a huge collection of fossils in one spot. And Naracourt is a shining example of that. Anyway, the caves trapped animals from about 500,000 to even less than 1,000 years ago. And you may not think about that, but that is pretty young. And to help some of you out, to put this in perspective, the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, and the mammals have since dominated the Earth. The earliest hominids appeared about 3 million years ago, and our species, Homo sapiens, evolved as these natural traps were opening up. The Naracourt animals actually lived during the Ice Age, which was about 2.6 million to 11,000 years ago. And funny thing about the Ice Age, you know what, actually, let's put a pin on that. I'll come back to that one later. That's important for our story here. So the Naracourt Caves are pretty recent. And actually, remember the Dominican Amber a couple episodes back? Well, that was about 16 million years ago. And we were seeing animals of the same genus as their modern counterpart. But for Naracourt, we're down to the species level. Some of the animal fossils found in the caves are still alive today. Pretty incredible. And about half of those 130 species described still roam the area today, and another quarter are still alive, but no longer live near the caves. The last quarter of these species, though, are of interest to us, as they are the weird and wonderful beasts that lived in southern Australia. Seeing these animals makes me wish for a time machine because they are freaking awesome. But first, a history of marsupials. The ancestor to marsupials first appeared in Asia during the early Cretaceous period, and we actually find fossils of their early relatives at J-Hole, which I covered in the previous episode. From there, we can trace their journey from Asia to Australia, which is actually more complicated than you may think. The current hypothesis is that these pre-marsupials migrated from Eurasia to North America, where we find some of the oldest true marsupials in the world. From there, they moved on down south to South America, and eventually through Australia via Antarctica. And actually, during this time, Antarctica was quite livable. It wasn't as close to the South Pole, and the global climate was much, much, much warmer than it is today. And as such, Antarctica acted as a comfortable land bridge between South America and Australia. The marsupials moved their way to Australia, where they eventually diversified, thrived, and lived there today. This hypothesis comes from all the fossils and genetic evidence that we have of marsupials. Now, one of the introductory terms that many biology students will encounter is a term called convergent evolution, a concept that unrelated organisms will evolve similar structures to serve a particular function. And an easy example of that are the wings of a bird versus that of a bat. They're both unrelated, but they both use their arms to help generate flight. 
For Australia's Pleistocene, and still to this day, we see convergent evolution all over the place. Animals will evolve certain roles and niches and structures similar to those found in North America or Africa. A great example of that is the Tasmanian wolf with the Eurasian wolf, Canis lupus. Although wolves that live in Eurasia and North America are more closely related to elephants than they are to the Tasmanian wolf, they have very similar features that propel them to be successful carnivores. A long snout for a good sense of smell, prominent canines for nipping and biting their prey, forward-facing eyes to accurately hunt prey, and prominent cheekbones to crush and slice meat. Now, despite Australia having the oldest confirmed fossil at 3.5 billion years ago, its mammalian fossil record is a bit underwhelming. Riverslay, which is the other World Heritage Site, has fossils spanning from the Oligocene to Miocene about 28 to 5 million years ago, found across different formations. Although these two sites give us a great idea about recent Australia fauna, there's still much we don't know about the early years of Australia's mammals. Perhaps we may get lucky one day and find another extraordinary find of marsupial fossils here, or even in Antarctica. So by the time the Naracourt pips were gulping down animals like an accidental sword swallower, every major group of marsupial animals, and then some, were alive and kicking. And dudes, this place was sick. I know there's a joke that everything alive in Australia is trying to kill you, but really, modern Australia has nothing compared to its Pleistocene counterpart. It's like Weenie Hut Jr. versus the Salty Spittoon. Okay, so, about half of the fossil species at Naracourt are still kicking today uh, in the modern world. These include reptiles, amphibians, birds, small marsupials, and kangaroos. And actually, kangaroos and their smaller cousins, the wallabies, make up about 80% of the large mammalian cave fossils. And this is likely because their quick and hopping nature means they'll accidentally jump into one of the traps and... Before they know it, they're in. <laughs> Another of the modern fossil animals is the barn owl, Tito alba. During the nighttime, the barn owls will hunt small mammals and reptiles in open forests, and then rest in the daytime in the cave. While they are resting, they regurgitate any undigested food like fur or bones via their trademark owl pellets. And because the barn owl is a bad roommate, these pellets will just accumulate underneath their roost and are not cleaned up at all. How hygienic! Many of the small fossils in the Neurocourt caves are from these regurgitates. We find tons of these bones and even fossilized owl pellets. This means that barn owls lived in the caves when their entrances were still open. It's honestly a perfect resting place for them. I mean, if anyone were to try to follow you into the caves, they would just get trapped in there while you chill in your little nook. So, perfect lifestyle for them. Also, I think it's worth pointing out now before I continue on, but one misconception you may have heard is that all Australian mammals were marsupials before humans arrived. This is false. Placental mammals lived in Australia well before the first human settlers. These include rodents and the bats whose fossils are found in Naracourt. The caves still act as a harbor, actually, for bats and serve as one of the two sites in the entire world for the critically endangered southern bent-winged bat. 
The staff at Naracourt Caves monitor the bat's population in an effort to understand and save these wonderful animals who act as the last link to a bygone era. So a quarter of the fossilized species are animals that are locally extinct. One animal that no longer lives in Naracourt, or frankly anywhere on the mainland, is the Tasmanian Devil. During the Pleistocene, the Tasmanian Devil was found throughout all of Australia, and should really be called the Australian Devil. These little monsters have a tremendous bite and can even crush bone. You can even find bite marks on fossilized bone caused by them. Really incredible. But their eventual disappearance was likely from the human-introduced dingo, who outcompeted the devils and drove them to extinction on the mainland. A lot of animals also became locally extinct due to similar circumstances, like the potoroos. And then there are animals that are completely wiped out by humans, the most famous of which is the Tasmanian wolf, Thylacocene. This dog-sized marsupial was among the last major Australian predators. Like its Tasmanian devil relative, the Thylacocene was outcompeted by dingoes and eked out a living in Tasmania. However, considerable pressure during European settlement of Tasmania uh, drove them through extinction through hunting, as they were seen as threats to livestock animals. Eventually, the last one passed away, in 1936, at Hobart Zoo. There is a little spark of hope, though, as there are now efforts to reintroduce the Tasmanian devil back into Australia. This year, actually, 11 Tasmanian devils were reintroduced into Australia in a sanctuary. And hopefully, just like the wolves in Yellowstone, they will become successful, breed more Tasmanian devils, and eventually return into their former glory like they did thousands of years ago. Now, the Thylacocene and the Tasmanian Devil lived alongside much bigger cousins during the Pleistocene. The whole collection of these megafauna were weird, wild, and wonderful. So let's take a look at them. Like kangaroos! Larger relatives of the eastern grey kangaroo are found in the caves, and they are so similar to their counterparts, there is debate whether or not they are the same species. But their size is put to shame next to the biggest kangaroo of them all, Procoptodon goliath, the short-faced kangaroo. It was about two and a half times heavier than the modern red kangaroo, and its fall reach would have been about three meters. Its short and robust skull was unlike the deer-like skulls of modern kangaroos. This gave them a powerful jaw that could crush and grind tough leaves and woody material. And what's more, it was so large, it may not have been able to hop. Its heavy body would have put a large amount of stress on its tendons, meaning it's more likely it would have walked like humans. Crazy, right? Because of its size, limited hopping and diet, it likely favored these forested regions of the area. In general, we are seeing major groups of animals with larger relatives. They weren't like woolly mammoth size or anything, but they got pretty chunky. For instance, there are ancient koalas, echidnas, and wallabies that are a bit bigger compared to their modern counterparts. And for the most part, they filled in similar roles like their modern kin, uh, with maybe some differences in their diet or habitat preference, but nothing too big. One of the more bizarre megafauna, though, is the marsupial tapir, 
Palarchestes Azele, which has an equally bizarre history. Fossil scraps of Palarchestes were identified by Sir Richard Owen, who coined the name dinosaurs, in 1873, and he originally thought of it as an ancient kangaroo. The name Palarchestes means ancient leaper, which is very funny considering that we now know it is very short and very squat. Now, it doesn't really have the title for the most contradictory name ever, all things considered. Uh, there's an animal called Basilosaurus, which means king lizard, but it was actually a whale. But that is the nature of paleontology. You learn as you go along, and animals you think are one thing turn out to be something completely different, like this one. Because it wasn't until the next century more of this fossil was found that scientists realized this creature was very much not like a kangaroo. It was the size of a horse and had these powerful limbs with large claws on the front. It likely would have sat on its hind quarters and reached up to pull stems down and eat the delicious leaves. As its skull looks similar to a tapir skull, there's a popular interpretation of it depicting its face like that of a tapir with its uh, with a short little snout. This decades-long interpretation has only until very recently been challenged, and now there's new evidence that suggests that Palerchestes didn't have a trunk, but instead had robust lips and a long tongue that could reach up even further and grab onto those nutritious plants. I love how... I, lo I just love how you can tell how old a certain scientific resource and uh, literature is based on the interpretation of the animals themselves. So that is one that is now needs to be updated. So Naricourt also has the largest marsupials to ever live. The second largest was Zygomaturus, which was about the size of a pygmy hippo and had these massive cheekbones and teeth. But by far... The largest of them was Diprotodon optatum, and about 2 meters at the shoulder and 3 meters from head to tail, this beast was massive, and no other marsupial has ever come close. Yet, you never know. The name Diprotodon references their two forward-facing incisors, which may have been used to help dig up and manipulate shrubbery. They also had these massive molars, the size of your fist, to chew up and grind these tough plants. Although they are found throughout Australia, they are quite rare in Narrowcourt, which is probably for the fact that they're too big to fall through these holes. So, where there are herbivores, naturally, there are carnivores to hunt them down. And at Narrowcourt, a variety of predators hunted the small and the large. We already tackled the barn owl and the Tasmanian wolf and devil, but let's take a look at some of the other meat-eaters. The first is the absolutely massive snake, Wanambi, at five meters long. This snake killed small to medium-sized mammals by constricting them like a python. It's named after the aborigine folklore the giant rainbow serpent, who would live in watering holes and enforced sacred law. Another giant reptilian predator is the Megalania, a larger relative of the Komodo dragon, which was probably five meters long and made it the largest known lizard ever. This massive monitor may have fed through scavenging and hunting, and it's not totally unrealistic that it may have hunted Diprotodon as well. But Megalania shared its top predator status with one of the most famous Australian megafauna ever. Thylacoleo, also called 
the Tasmanian lion. The amount of lore, myth, research, speculation, and awe surrounding this carnivore just overflows the paleontology mug and spills into the public's eye repeatedly. Every now and then, I see documentaries, digestible paleontology books, internet forums, and Twitter posts of people appreciating this apex predator. I even read in one scientific paper that Thylacoleo was Australia's Pleistocene answer to the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Oh yeah, it's that big of a deal. So what was this predator like exactly? So our understanding of Thylacoleo has evolved since it was first identified, again by Sir Richard Owen in the mid-1800s. Based on a scattered cranium material, he named the animal uh, Thylacoleo, which means pouched lion, and commented, quote, It was one of the fellest and most destructive of predatory beasts. End quote. This dramatic proposal was based on the animal's large and impressive teeth. But beyond that, though, not much was known about Thylacoleo's appearance. So it wasn't until a century later that a deluge of Thylacoleo specimens flooded the paleontology gates. Intense exploration of the Narracourt Caves in the 1950s and 60s found fossil after fossil after fossil of the marsupial lion. The famous Victoria Cave yielded at least 18 individuals, which it and other caves gave us a complete reconstruction of the animals right down to its toes. And actually, the unusually high amount of Thylacoleo may have been similar to that of La Brea Tar Pits. In La Brea Tar Pits, we see a high amount of predators, particularly that of the dire wolf and the Smilodon, because they would see struggling animals in the tar pits, they think of them as an e- easy meal, they go in for the kill, they too get stuck, and the cycle repeats over and over again. And in this case, wandering Thylacoleo could have been enticed into the pits when they heard the moans and the cries of trapped animals. They jump in to investigate, and then they too get trapped. Being hungry has made fools of us all. Okay, so despite Thylacoleo being named after the lion, it's very unlion-like. It was about the size of a cougar, but it was built like a brick. And as such, it couldn't chase down its prey like lions could, and it was more of an ambush hunter. And the craziest part is, Thylacoleo hunted like no other modern-day carnivore. So because we now have an ample amount of fossils, we can accurately recreate their arms. Their powerful arms were relatively flexible, and they had a huge retractable claw. This was perfect for grasping and slashing prey. Their jaws are also weird. They had these large incisors that were blunt and jut outwards, very unlike a cat. And they had these massive premolars that could easily shear meat. So, their current hypothesis is that these guys would ambush their preys and pin them down using their powerful jaws, and then slash them open with their retractable claws. Pretty crazy, right? This is the opposite strategy from cats, who would use their paws to pin down the food and deliver the killing blow with their jaws. 
Thylaco Leo's unusual hunting strategy is a testament to evolution uh, <laughs> MacGyvering its creatures. It's easy to think of evolution as having an end goal in mind, and that is far from the case. Whatever seemed to work for mutations or strategies is passed down to the next generation, and this repeats over and over. For Thylaco Leo, its closest relatives are, and get this, are actually koalas and wombats. That's right, its ancestors were small plant eaters. And apparently, through either the lack of predators or competition for plants, their ancestors slowly evolved a hypercarnivorous lifestyle. Their climbing arms transformed into powerful slashing weapons, and their large teeth sharpened to blade-like chompers, all of which made the marsupial lion the apex predator of Australia's Pleistocene. Truly incredible. It is now time to take down that Ice Age pin from earlier and ask ourselves what happened to the Australia's megafauna. In the history of paleontology, scientists have tackled many large and imposing questions that daunt the fossil record. Who were the first amphibians? How did the Cambrian explosion happen? How did birds evolve? And among the top 10 of these questions, what killed the Ice Age megafauna. Throughout the world, we see megafauna of a variety of sizes, coming from different families, filling in all sorts of niches. Yet their demise happened in a relatively short time with only a few survivors. How did these creatures die? The two main causes that everyone turns to is climate change and human-induced extinction. Proponents for climate change say that wild fluctuations of temperatures and precipitation overstressed these beasts. Their lifespans were too long, and they couldn't adapt quickly enough to the changes, and they perished. On the other side, we have the human-induced extinctions, where humans pushed the megafauna to extinction through a combination of spreading disease, starting wildfires, and overhunting. To put it bluntly, there is no simple answer to this question. A whole host of variables stir and complicate our extinction pot, such as geography, human migration, animal species, and time spanning over hundreds of thousands of years. So let's narrow our question down and ask what killed Australia's megafauna. Even then, this is a heavy question, and although I do find it interesting, I don't want this to take up the bulk of our episode because we are primarily focused on the narrow court caves. We also have to confront the frustrating truth that Australia's fossil record is still rather incomplete, and dating the fossils can be challenging. So, here is a summary of our best understanding of what happened. For the most part, it appears that climate change caused the Australian megafauna extinction with migrating humans acting as the final nail in the coffin for the few survivors that were left. Based on recent archaeological evidence, the first humans arrived in Australia about 65,000 years ago. Yet by then, over half of the megafauna, like the not-tape-peer-like marsupial taper, were already extinct. So what happened? 
So over the past few million years, the world's climate experienced cycles of warming and cooling, with glaciers advancing, retreating, advancing, retreating, and so forth. This is already pretty stressful to plants and animals, but the worst of it came about 130,000 years ago. It was among the largest glaciation periods in Earth history, with huge chunks of North America and Eurasia covered in ice. Although Australia was spared from these glaciers, the intense drying and cooling was too much for its megafauna, who died off in droves before and after this period. By the time humans arrived, Australia was already a land of the depleted. It's hard to say how much humans directly affected these remaining animals, although I highly doubt it was beneficial. Surprisingly, humans have been in contact with both Thylacoleo and the biggest marsupial of all, Diprotodon, for at least twenty thousand years. There are even supposed cave paintings of these creatures. One paper I read, which came out in 2019, proposed that the competition between humans and animals for scarce watering holes may have been what pushed these already stressed group of creatures over the edge. With nearby sources of water and food, humans took advantage of the terrain, outcompeted the animals, and ended the last Australia megafauna. So Australia overall has seen these unfortunate wave after wave after wave. Of various forces that push these stressed animals to the brink of extinction. Nonetheless, many of Australia's fabulous fauna still survive to this day. And the amazing thing to me is that through all of this, our knowledge of the fossils of Nerecourt caves have only just begun. As influential as it already is. Nerecourt cave significance will continue to grow within the next few decades. More and more research is poured into this area as paleontologists analyze the existing fossil sites while looking for new ones. Nerecourt could also be the key in unraveling the megafauna's disappearance and understanding climate change's effect on local ecosystems. Already, we can document how families and species of Australia animals change over thousands upon thousands of years, thanks to highly precise dating. And one of the things that I didn't emphasize enough in this episode is that this is not just one deposit of fossils, but a whole bunch of them. And these deposits span in different areas and time spans within the past 500,000 years. As research becomes more refined, we can sharpen these dates and look at the climatic history of the region. We can look at plant fossils and reconstruct these ancient ecosystems. We can even look at the younger fossils and identify them based on their DNA. It's very cool to say the least. I want to end the episode with an appreciation for the people who had the foresight to protect these caves. Because even in back in the 1860s, visitors were very curious about the caves. They wanted to visit them, and in doing so, they found them very enjoyable. And like a lot of visitors, they decided to take a little memento of their trip to the caves with them. 
and they would take little bits of stalactites, among other pieces of the cave, back with them. And even by the late 1860s, damage was already being accumulated in these caves by this unrestrained collection. And so the people who realized that these caves are special took it upon themselves to ensure their protection for future generations to come. And it took many decades before their dreams of preserving these caves became a reality. And in doing so, they ensured that people of all backgrounds, not just Australia, but from the world itself, to come and appreciate what these caves have to offer. Because that's the thing about this being a World Heritage Site. It's not just South Australia site, or Greater Australia's National Park. It is everyone's park. Everyone's heritage site. And when the visitors come and appreciate what these caves have to offer, they have that appreciation and that wonder and that joy because of the efforts of many, many, many people who pour their heart and soul into the landscape and ensure that other people can appreciate these caves just as they have before. This sense of foresight and optimism, to me, is a great example of the achievements that humanity can obtain. And I myself have never been to Narracourt, not yet but I am definitely going to visit there one day uh, once all this blows over. And I can finally see from my very eyes the megafauna that used to roam the caves at Narracourt. And with that, we end Season 1 of Fossil Bonanza. It has been quite a ride, to say the least, at least for me. And it's funny to think that this time last year, I was researching and writing episode one for this podcast. When I began Fossil Bonanza, I wanted to make sure that I did it justice, that it didn't fall by the wayside. Because the problem with folks like me who have ADHD is that I tend to, I give it my all, 110%, and then I burn out and move on to something else. And I did not want that to happen to Fossil Bonanza. And after a lot of writing and research and recording, the whole season was basically 90% done by the time the first episode came out. And I'm really glad I'd done that. And that is my advice if you ever decided to do your own podcast, uh, particularly if it's research-based. Have a lot of it done by the time you release that first episode. That's definitely going to save your bacon. Even with a two-week break, a lot of things that you have on the back burner can pile up real quick. I'm very happy with the end result here. And I want to stress, I am researching Season 2 for Fossil Bonanza. And I'm I'm not going to say just yet what it is. But I'm really looking forward to it. I think there's a lot of cool stories to tell here. And I think you all will enjoy it. Uh, I won't say yet when it will come out because I'm still in the early stages of research. But if you want to keep in touch with me... I do have my Twitter account, Fossil Bonanza, and I post all sorts of wonderful things up there. Fossil updates, uh, I recently started doing a Loggerstadt of the week, and all sorts of things like that. So if you want to keep learning about fossils with me, come follow me on Twitter, and I appreciate that. And if you have any kind of advice or 
comments, or even fossil sites you think I should cover, let me know. I'm all ears. But in the meanwhile, thank you very much for listening to my show. I appreciate all of your love and support very much. I'm so happy that people from across the world have listened. And I can even tell by based on my stats alone that I've been having some regulars. So thank you to all you regulars out there who stuck it out with me, which is pretty awesome. In the meanwhile, take care. I love you all so much, and I hope to see you again next time.